When IDF soldiers are out in the field, they can really use a good pizza or some freshly baked goods. You can't beat our donuts. They're real donuts. Show them that you care. Send a tasty gift to an IDF soldier. Visit our website at Herbie'sBakeShop.com. That's Herbie with a Y. Just fill out the order online. They'll love you for it. Or you can make the Israel National Radio Staff's day by sending them coffee or a pizza break. Just fill out the order online. Herbie'sBakeShop.com. Herbie'sBakeShop.com. Left-wingers don't know what to do with him. Anti-Semites hate his guts. They They would give anything to get him off the radio. Tovia Singer, coming up next on Israel National Radio. Singer here, Israel National Radio, IsraelNationalRadio.com, 1650 AM on the Canadian dial, coming out of Montreal, was syndicated all over the place, big. Chief Rabbi of News Talk Radio, that's why. Taking your calls live on air, 1-800-270-4288. Don't touch the dial. The Rebbe is back, singer here, Israel National Radio, taking your questions live on air. Much to speak about. We'll go to the callers right now, and then I, I might take, we got, a, I don't know, I get, all right, a lot of questions online, emails, and, and I'm, I just finished writing a book that took me about six months to put together. Uh, it'll be out in about two weeks or so, and um, it'll be up on Amazon, it's a uh, title of the book is Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah? It's a 500-page hard book, hardcover book, and it's been done and edited and checked and blah, blah, and looking forward to that. So I've been busy, uh, but I will, go, I will go to the emails in a moment. But we have right now Yaakov Palo Alto, and I'm assuming that's California. Yaakov, welcome to the show. What is on your mind? Do we have Yaakov? Hello. Yes, I'm welcome here. To the sh- uh, welcome to the show, Yaakov. <laughs> uh, shalom, Robia, uh, Tobian. Um, we've talked before. Uh, asked some hard questions today. I posed one question because some people in the um, virtual studio were complaining that uh, we have too many bad things that are happening in the world. Hmm. My question is: Does anyone know how many prophecies have not been fulfilled yet? And are there any prophecy scholars that have worked out the answer to this? Well, there are six major six major events that are to occur, but within those events there are numerous subsets, just like uh, you know, in the Haggadah at the Passover Seder you know, we enumerate the plagues that occurred in Egypt and the miracles that occurred at the sea. And one might say that there was one miracle, the water passed through, but in fact there were hundreds of miracles involved in that uh, as a subset of that one uh, um, epic event that occurred in the year 2448 after creation. It's funny that I have an email here in front of me where someone asked, why doesn't Judaism accept the Christian Messiah? Why don't we believe in Jesus? So let me just say this. 
the most central event in the Messianic age, and keep your eye on this all the time, is that there will be a world that the world will be redeemed. Meaning, in contrast to salvific events that occurred in history, whether it was Abraham who affected so many souls in Choron, whether it was um, a man named Gideon who saved the Jewish people in Judges 6 from the Midianites, whether it was um, Moses who redeemed a single nation, the Jewish people, from the cauldron of Egypt, whether it was the Maccabees, going back some 2,200 years ago, that saved the Jewish people in the land of Israel from the Greeks. So what we had in the past is events where the Jewish people have been saved, and some of these individuals are actually called saviors in the Jewish scriptures. There is a, a an event that will occur, please God, imminently, where the world will be drawn to the knowledge of one God, and uh, those who point to the God of Israel and say, you are my God, will be redeemed. This is an unprecedented event in human history. It's recorded very vividly in Zechariah 13 and 14. The Messianic Age is not just a redemption of the Jewish people, but a redemption of the world. Now, most of the world will not be a part, most of those living human beings will not be a part of that salvation. Most will turn their back on the God of Israel. Zechariah identifies them not in numbers or percentages, but refers to them as two parts. Pishnayim is the words used in Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, that two parts of the world will join Gog and Magog. And incidentally, if you're Jewish, you also don't have a guarantee. If I was Norman Finkelstein, I'd be thinking really quickly. Zechariah 14, 14 tells us, the Isaiah 66, that there will be Jews who will join Gog and Magog, and they too will meet their destruction. So the Messianic age, really, I can go through the fundamental prophecies that will occur, fundamental events that will occur. You know, but the most important is that God's name will be one, He will be one, the world will accept His dominion above all. Isaiah 60, arise and shine for your light has come. That's critical. Isaiah chapter 11, the knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea. I, um, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, in those days no one will have to teach his neighbor about God, for they shall all know me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 16, verse 19 and 20, the Gentiles will come unto the Jewish people and declare, how can we have made, how can we have sinned and engaged in this idolatry? Surely we've inherited lies from our fathers. Zechariah 8.23 and ten Gentiles of different languages will grab the hem of a Jew and say, Take us with you, because now we know that God is with you. Isaiah 53 is the pronouncement of the Gentile nations upon the recognition of the Messiah. Their shock and they're stunned. Who would have believed this report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So we have this entire chapter. Well, actually, it's not the entire chapter, but it's the 53rd chapter, the verses 1 through 9, where the non-Jews are speaking, and in shock, utter astonishment, they're holding their hands over their mouths, 
because what they are seeing is completely contrary to what they've ever considered. Until the point of the Messianic age, the non-Jewish world attributed the suffering of the Jewish people to the fact that the Jews refused to accept the gods and demigods and saviors of the world's nations. They will recognize all this that all this time what the faith of the Jewish people is true. Now, so that's the major thrust of all the messian of messianic age. Now, as a subset, there are you know, let's say five or six major events, but within them there are hundreds of messianic prophecies therein. But as a major point, uh, major categories, is the ingathering of the exiles. We're living in a remarkable time. A higher percentage of the Jewish people, larger percentage of Jewish people, live in the land of Israel today than during the Second Temple period. Approximately 50% of all Jews live, or known Jews, live in the land of Israel. Bible tells us, Jeremiah tells us, that at the end of days they'll be gathered and that all the Jewish people will be gathered into the land of Israel. There's going to be a worldwide peace, which means that nation, this is uh, the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war anymore. We have a, a paradigm of this, a metaphor of this, in Isaiah 11, where the lamb will lie with a lion, a little child, will be able to play near a cobra's den. does not mean that lions will become herbivorous and uh, and snakes will start eating uh, flowers, but it, it means that uh, nations, will, war will no longer be a part of the picture. Elijah the prophet, this is um, articulated at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Malachi, will usher in the Messianic Age, the building of the third temple is critical. That's the from Isaiah chapter 37, the last two verses, incidentally tell us that not only will there be a sanctuary built on the Temple Mount, but this temple will stand forevermore, and it will be that trigger event, the building of the temple, where the nations will recognize that they had made a terrible error and they'll turn to the recognize the God of Israel and that temple will stand forever and in that temple no one who is uncircumcised both of the heart or the flesh Ezekiel 44 verse 9 will be able to enter into that sanctuary so those are the major events there's a, the resurrection of the dead it's described in um, Daniel. Can, can I interrupt? yeah interrupt me anytime I, I, I think I think the uh, I mean you have lots of great information, but I'm a bit more specific uh, in my question than the generalities of the rest of the Tanakh. Right. In the writings of Moses, in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, we have a series of curses. Mm. Deuteronomy 28 has 56 verses; they're all curses. Right. Deuteronomy 30 starts off with. When all these, the blessings and the curses, have transpired as a timeline, number uh, Leviticus 26 ends up in both of these. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it says, When you turn back to me with your whole heart, then I will hear you again. Hmm. It's not individually, it's all, but it appears that all of these curses must transpire 
before we will turn back and accept God. Hmm. Right. And Moses said it many times that we don't see this. We don't do it. In, De- in Deuteronomy 29, Moses says, God showed you all of this. He showed you all the power. He took you through the desert for 40 years, and your clothes never wore out. You never without food. You've been taken care of, and you could not see him. Hmm. Right. Moses is very frustrated at the end. So I right. find that there are two sections of curses that are very specific, and they have a timeline, and they end with when we turn back to God. Right. We, the children of Israel, not the world, the children of Israel, we are the key right. from my readings. L- so my a... question was, how many right. of those have not been completed? Because if it is a timeline, and Moses is saying it correctly... When all of these have transpired, the blessings and the curses, then you will return. I want to know how close we are. It's very important to me because the world looks really terrible right now. There's a lot of really bad stuff out there, and most everything from the prophets from Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the rest of them all seem to be happening right now. Good is bad, bad is good. I mean, the world's upside down. So how much is left of what we have to go through before we will actually turn around? Right. That was my question. All right. Let me, can I, may I add to your question? Okay. Let me do this, because I just want to um, do this with you. I want to get your brain really moving here. Why do we need Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28? Those two chapters are called the Teichacha, the blessing and the cursing. They seem to be sort of redundant. Why why do we need these very difficult chapters? Why twice? It's, it's very simple. In all of my study of the Torah and the Tanakh, no important event is only done once. But Everything is twice. It took me a long time to figure out where those other 56 curses are at. Go, and they're in Leviticus. Go, go. Let me ask you another question, because I want I want to take you deeper than something said once or something said twice. Go ahead. Leviticus twenty six is a much shorter chapter than Deuteronomy oh, yes. twenty eight. Uh, Leviticus ah. twenty six has only forty six verses. Deuteronomy yes. twenty eight has sixty eight verses. So right. Deuteronomy twenty eight uh-huh. is also more horrific, more, more, more earth shattering. I'll, I'll offer one. Oh, okay, Here, here's what I'm saying. Can I interrupt? Offer one more here's question. A... Let me. Let me just one more question. Okay. And okay. Then you, okay. And then you jump in. Okay. Yep. Leviticus 26 ends with comfort, which means that at the end of Leviticus 26, Hashem says, "I will not utterly destroy you, lest I violate yep. the promise I made to your forefathers." So you yes. have a comfort at the end of Leviticus 26. Yes. Even though it's a tar- very, very difficult chapter, Deuteronomy 28 really doesn't have that comfort at the end. Now jump in. Right. Why? Why these two, and why the distinction? Um, Leviticus 26 short because it actually hits you with, "I will check and see." If you have turned back to me, because you turned away from me, I will curse you seven times. Then I will check and see, and I will curse you seven more. And then I will check, and if you're still against me, I will be against you, and I will do seven more. Count them up. There's 56. Now, why the two? It's like the statement in in, uh, Genesis 1 about the creation, and then we get a second creation story coming from a different angle, which makes it easier for some people to understand 
in, Gen- in Genesis 2. Okay. They're the same story from two different pictures. They're not different. They are the same. All right. If we if we have um, but that you Noah, size who saved the world, and a few people, because he's righteous in his generation, Lot, they couldn't destroy the whole plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities in there, and actually didn't destroy Zor, the little town that uh, Lot went to because they couldn't make it to the hill. Right. The angels and God said, okay, you can go to that little town over there, and I will do my work anyway. But that little town was saved because Lot, who was the only one that was righteous, and he went there with great wealth and lots of people and left with only his two daughters and his wife. Right. All right. The rest of them wouldn't go. They wouldn't hear. You got one righteous can save a whole bunch. Jeremiah 5 is told to go out into Jerusalem and find one righteous man who judges righteously and seeks the truth. For one righteous and one righteous man, I will forgive them all, said God. We don't do that. We're not looking for what's righteous and what's right. Why not? God says, I'm going to do this stuff. My bet is, based on everything I've seen through history, God does exactly what he says he's going to do. Right. Let, let me see. And therefore, if I go back to the original see, we're text... Just, we're just running out of time, and I apologize for, uh, for interrupting me you. Let, let me too. I mean, and those are very important thoughts. Let me, let me shed some light. Let me just add something to what you're saying and give you okay. a little time to think about it. And that is that there were two periods in history when the Jewish people were exiled. One time they were exiled from the first temple, and, but that was a brief exile. It was an exile where they already had in their hands a piece of paper, and that piece of paper was the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 10, which told them that their exile would only be 70 years. Um, There would be a second exile, and that's the exile of Edom. Now, this exile would be something much more horrific. We know that from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 describes the the fourth beast that would destroy the second temple, and Daniel Daniel 10 and 11 describe the history that would unfold. So therefore, you have two areas, two chapters in the Bible that are essentially addressing two horrific judgments against the Jewish people. One would be very brief, relatively speaking, borrowing a phrase from the Bush administration, a cakewalk compared to the to the Babylonian exile. And that's why you have the words of comfort that come immediately, because the first, second temple was, re, I mean, you have Cyrus only 50 years after the destruction of the first temple already calling the Jewish people to return to their land. The second exile was something horrific. Now, if you're asking me, have they been fulfilled? Absolutely. We have just, we have just 65 years ago endured the most unimaginable horrific. I mean, when the Bible says that things that you will see, you won't believe with your eyes at night, you'll hope it's day and a day it's night. Uh, you, what you'll see with your eyes, you will go crazy. Uh, we could see that in the, in the, in the time in the ba- in the not the Babylon but the the exile of Rome, and we are enduring it now. I would posit to you this, and you know maybe I, I, I'm guessing you don't live in Israel, but if you were in Israel, there are 
you know, there are a million Jews in this country, more perhaps, that are on fire for God. They might not be in Palo Alto or in Denver, but they're here in the Holy Land, and it is in their zechus, in their merit, that we will see the redemption. But that's what I, what I just said is not my words. This comes from the words of Nachmanides, and that's why we have these two separate chapters. They're not exactly right. redundant. And you know Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. Genesis 2 focuses in on Adam, the first human being. So, right. uh, anyways, it's a blessing to hear from you. Do you have any other questions you'd like to ask? Uh, I have one other comment that just occurred to me. Sure. I said that everything happened twice. Would it not be that the destruction of 75% of all flesh on the earth, or as Daniel puts it, that should not it be called to an end, there should be no flesh alive on the earth in the 1,330th day? Well, you know... Um, would that not be like uh, an ark with only seven souls on board? Let me say this, that you know that Daniel, as well as warned not to give away the time of the end. And you know, yes. you've studied the book of Daniel, and you, so you know that chapter 8 and chapter 12 are virtually impossible to understand. It's not that the attempts have not been made to um, unravel the clues and try to figure it out, but it is the same book where there is a warning, and that is not to make a calculation of the end. I'm I'm not um, sort of dodging your question, but it's very clear that the angel Gabriel, a messenger from God, said to Daniel, shut this book, because lest you give away the time of the end, it's forbidden for us to engage in it. So therefore, those chapters well, are very ambiguous for good reason. What wasn't uh, the statement that he wasn't to report the final piece, but the angel did say that at 1,290 day, uh, 95 days, um, the destruction would happen, and if you survived to 1,330 days, you'd be considered righteous? Yes, but again... Those timelines are put in there for the end destruction. But, How that last day happens is what, was re re what he was required not to write. He was not to write the last thing he saw. Well, it's... Only the, the things leading up to it. It's the time of the end. It's very clear in the book of Daniel... If you go to the last chapter, chapter 12 of Daniel, it's the time of the end that is forbidden to be calculated. And and that's right. why we try, you know, even even Christians have this, um, you know, have this, you know, tradition not to try to figure out the time of the end. I think they took it from us. But, you know, when Daniel uses these terms in chapter one, you know, or chapter one, and, and, and again, you know, she says, in verse 4, he says, Daniel, shut up the, these words, seal this book until the time of the end, and many shall run forth through it, knowledge shall increase, and so on and so forth. If you look at verse 7, I mean, it's just very, very difficult to understand. I've got to go to news break. We've got folks waiting online. Thank so, you, Rabbi. Uh, thank you. God Shalom. bless you. Thank you so much for joining us right here on Israel National Radio, IsraelNationalRadio.com. Do we have that? Let me just... There we go. This is a lighter. Psalm one twenty one. There is no ambiguity ambiguity in this chapter. Where will my salvation? Planning a trip to Israel? You need a licensed tour guide. See Israel like you've never seen it before. Israel National Radio's own Mayor Eisenman will take you around the country for an educational and fun experience. Each tourist gets a personally designed tour based on his preferences. 
The land of the Bible comes alive in the hands of an energetic and experienced tour guide. Visit www.israelbymayor.com. That's israelbymayor, M-E-I-R. Or email directly at israelbymayor at gmail.com. Joshua had one at Jericho. Gideon had one. Now you can too. You can buy your very own authentic Israeli-made ceremonial ram's horn or shofar anywhere in the world by visiting www.thegreatshofar.com. For free shipping, enter the code INR on the website checkout page. That's INR for Israel National Radio. Get your very own shofar at www.thegreatshofar.com. Now, the only independent news talk network in the Middle East, Israel National Radio, presents the Tovia Singer Show. Here's Tovia Singer. Singer here, Israel National Radio, israelnationalradio.com, 1650 AM. That's on your Canadian dial. You're anywhere within a few hundred miles of the fake Royal Mountain. This is the real Royal Mountain, but if you're in Montreal, first of all, make sure you got your coat on, and you can hear us on Radio Shalom, taking your questions live, 1-800-270-4288, the number to dial anywhere around the world. It's a real beautiful song, but this is not a music station. We just use them as beds. All right, that was the Idan Rachel Project. Look it up. It's there. The name of the song is called Bowie. I'm going to get a million questions on that. Let's go to the callers. Um, tomorrow there's not going to be a show, so I'm going to be back Tuesday right here on Israel National Radio. Mickey joining us. Mickey, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Hi, how are you doing, Tobia? Um, um, I have two questions. I hope you have time for the, both of them. But anyway, we'll yeah. start with the first one. Yeah. My question is about the third temple. Now, yeah. Ezekiel mentions the third temple, but he wrote this before the second temple was built. So yeah. didn't, did the people who were in the second temple think that there would be another one? And if so, why were they? Why did they hold on so tightly to it to save it and when Rome tried to destroy it? That's my first question. Yeah, I... Um, well, let me just explain this. The When Ezekiel described the third temple in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, and he makes reference to it at the end of the 37th chapter, there are some identifying features of the, the temple that preclude the possibility that he was referring to the second temple by anybody's standards. The most central feature of that is that uh, the third temple, if you read the last few chapters of Ezekiel 45 through 48, would be, would be home to all the 12 tribes which would be reunited. Bear in mind that Ezekiel 37, you're familiar with it, the Valley of Dry Bones, 
is an indication of the restoration of the Jewish people, even the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was not restored. Moreover, the the third temple would be uh, a, a place where non-Jews would be able to offer sacrifices. We see that at the end of the book of Zechariah. The dimensions of the third temple were completely different and unsuitable for the temple mount that existed. Ironically, Herod's, the platform that Herod created back in, I don't know, let's say 30 BCE, uh, no, not that far back, uh, a little younger than, let's say uh, 20, that he initiated before the before the uh, century, um, made it possible for a third temple to be built, but the, the mountaintop was just not even large enough for the dimensions of the third temple. According to most opinions, the western wall, which today is just a retaining wall, will actually be one of the walls of the temple. So it wasn't even close, and it wasn't even close to the first temple, which, and you know that in the book of um, Ezra and the book of Zechariah, there's a, there's a mourning among the elderly men who recall the first temple of how puny the second temple was. So they, they knew there wasn't the 12 northern tribes. The one other thing is that... Um, there was an awareness from Daniel chapter 9 of the length of time that the second temple would last. That means they knew that the period of time from the destruction of the first temple to the destruction of the second temple would be a 490-year period. So you ask the question, well, why fight? Why Why not just give up? Because you know the clock is out. And the answer to that question is that Although positive prophecies must be fulfilled, God is bound himself by them, negative prophecies can be undone. And therefore, there is always hope against hope that if the nation repents, just like the people of Nineveh were able to repent and forgiven in Jonah chapter 3.10, that this negative prophecy of the destruction of the second temple... Remember, Daniel was a contemporary of Ezekiel, so his works, his prophetic works, were well known as Ezekiel's. Uh, They knew that the second temple had a beginning and had an end. The third temple has no end. The third temple will stand forever. Okay. All right, so my second question is, um, I heard Dr. Kedar on Tamar's show the other night, and uh, he said something very interesting. He said that Hazal says that the um, back in the days of, of Odazara, the people didn't really believe that these were other gods. It's just that it allowed them to engage in practices that they weren't supposed to do. Now, is, if that's the case, does that mean that whenever the Bible prohibits idolatry and criticizes idolatry, it's not criticizing a false belief, but criticizing a false moral or ethical or legal system of the, um, behavior? I, I, I didn't, and don't tell Tamar this, I didn't listen to that show, but I, I know what Rav Kadar, what, what Dr. Kadar is referring to. He, he is so brilliant. He's such a Renaissance man. Like, he's one of these, these guys, like, just know everything. What Dr. Kadar, I'm sure, was describing is not how um, idolatry uh, operated throughout the First Temple period. He's explaining what Maimonides explained. And that is, how did people ever come to idolatry? You know, Adam knew about the God, about one God. He was aware of it. So how did that transformation ever occur? 
So I'm sure Dr. Kadar was, who's a professor at Bar Ilan of Arabic Studies, was explaining is how did that transformation, how do people go from worshiping God, who everybody was aware of, who interacted with Adam, who, uh, you know, Shem was well aware of how did that how did that transact how did that happen? How did the transition occur? So what he what Maimonides explains is that people felt humble. They felt that they couldn't you can't talk directly to God. So what you do is you speak to a representation of God. So that the initial sun worshippers and sun the sun was the most ancient form of idolatry, worshipping it and they didn't begin by actually worshiping it, but they just saw the sun as a representation of God. Now, Mickey, I'm sure you were a kid, you played the game Telephone, and the the game goes to basically, a person says a word to the first person, and by the time it gets in, it's, it's totally, you know, something else. And you, I'm sure Mickey was the guy who sort of messed it up in the middle of the line. But the key point is that... I, I was the one who did that. But the key point is that uh, uh, the ultimately what began as people just worshiping, like in the Catholic Church, if you ask a normal American Catholic that they bow to these statues, do you believe the statue is anything? They'll say no, it just represents Mary or whatever it is. So that's how it went. The sun represented God. And then eventually people began to worship it as God. By the time you get to the first temple period, even before, long before that, people are already worshiping many gods, but they are worshiping gods. Among the Jews, however, there was this strange phenomena, as we see today. And that is Jewish people were still worshiping God, but they were worshiping other gods as well. They were adding them together. They were worshiping the God of Israel and Baal at the same time. And Elijah, you know this, in First Kings 18, verse 21, Elijah is, is upset with the Jews, and he asks them, how long will you halt between these two opinions? Choose God or choose Baal. You can't have both. That's why the Talmud describes how you know the priests would be on the Temple Mount, and they would tur- turn their, I mean, this is mind-blowing. They would turn their backs to the Heichel. They would turn their backs to the Holy of Holies and bow down to the sun. Now, of course, that is like so vile, so disgusting, but it also raises a question. What were they doing on the Temple Mount? Why didn't they bow down to the sun, you know, in, in Brooklyn? Why go to, the answer is they were always trying to do this Jews for Jesus thing. Like, I'm still Jewish, but I believe in Jesus, or I'm still... So Jews never wanted to, you know, dis, you know, even Norman Finkelstein, you know, I'm Jewish, the son of Holocaust survivors. I just hate Israel, but idolatry. Yeah, but, but, that, but that's that's the opposite sure. of the, what I'm trying. The point I'm trying to make is that I thought that what he said was, and I was wondering if you knew what the what the quotation was that he was referring to. He said that the Hazal said that the people really did not believe in these other gods. It was as if they just pretended to, so that they would have an excuse to engage in other behaviors that they, they weren't allowed to do. I'm not, I, 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 I'm not, I can't, I, you'd have to ask him directly, and he's very accessible. Um, he's got a website, and, and when you email him, he'll respond. I, the In fact, the Talmud says something very interesting that, I, and maybe I'm hit on something, and maybe this will remind you, because I, I didn't listen to the show, so I don't want to quote him or speak for him. Chazal do say, so number one, Maimonides explains how idolatry just happened. Um, this, the, the second thing I say just tells, which is really strange, 
And that's because because there's so much holiness here in the land of Israel, our sages tell us that real idolatry only exists in the land of Israel. And that the idolatry that we observe in other countries of the world, whether it's India or Egypt, is only Gentiles mimicking what their parents have done. They have a minig avoysehem biyodehem, which means that only in Israel, because there's holiness here, so there has to be a counterbalance of something vile and unholy. So only here in Israel is the real, authentic idolatry going on. And in other parts of the world, sure, people bow down to totem poles, but I don't think they really believe what they just carved as a god. But again, I, you'd have to pose that question to, to Dr. Kadar, who's, okay. I, love I love, he's one of those brilliant people who I just love. He's amazing. Okay, did, you, did, you, did you ever see his um, YouTube debate on, on Al Jazeera in Arabic? No, where do you okay. see it on YouTube? All right, look, 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 all right. You want to first? Don't you dare do this. I'm going to watch YouTube and see how many people watch it. After the show is over, go to YouTube and put in Dr. Kadar debates Al Jazeera. It's like ten minutes in Arabic with subtitles. He does it in Arabic and he blows the guy away. It's it's like you sit there and going, wow. I mean, he's just understand the power of this man. Yeah, he's. His debate on Al Jazeera is on YouTube. you got to watch it. Okay. Brilliant, man. All right, well, have, have fun tomorrow, whatever you're doing. Uh, we'll, make, we'll talk next week. All right. All right, Mickey. Thank you for joining us here on Israel National Radio. 1-800-270-4288, the number to dial anywhere around the world. And just get rid of that call right there. Okay. Isn't that interesting? I just had a thought, and then it just flew. I think you, you reach a certain age. Those of you who are baby boomers, tell me I'm wrong. Do you ever, like, walk into a room and say, why did I come here? You pass a certain point. You're not senile. You haven't lost your mind yet. But you're, like, looking at a bowl of fruits, and you see this fruit there. It's a grape, and you're saying, what is that name for that is? Or you walk into the kitchen, why did I come here? All right. <laughs> Just, uh... If you share this malady with me, just let me know what happens to me as well. Okay. All right. I'm going to, do we have, all right. Well, 1-800-270-4288. We have 10 minutes left. Dear Rabbi Singer, how could you be so sure that Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah? Wasn't the Messiah promised to the Jewish people long ago? What else would he need to do to convince you that he was the one sent from God? That's the question I just got at the beginning of this broadcast. You see, I think, I don't know, because I've spent very little time as a Christian, like no time, but it seems to me that um, what Christians are not doing, and if you're a Christian and you want to correct me, I'm open to... um, to that, I think what Christians do is that they're raised as little, you know, little boys, little girls, and you know when they go to bed, you know, the mommy sits down next to them and sort of rubs their back and just says, "Jesus loves you." That's what I think happens. So you just grow up and, and Jesus is perfect, and he, you know, he's in these little coloring books. And I, I don't say this as a um, in order to demean. I think this is just what's going on. So Jesus is like Superman. He does everything. 
and he's perfect, and he's sweet, and he won't betray you, and he loves you, and he'll give his life for you. And I, I think that's how... And then eventually Christians like learn that they know stories like the, the Noah's Ark, you know, the Exodus. They know stories. But I, I think that comes all later when Christians study the Jewish Bible. So by the time they study the Jewish Bible, there's like, it's it. Jesus is Superman. He's my invisible friend, and he's perfect, and he looks beautiful, and he has... He's six foot tall, and he doesn't have a, you know, he doesn't have an an inch of body fat on him, and he has perfect hair. You know, there's no fat, short, bald Jesus with a goiter in the middle of his face. He just looks perfect. He is perfect, and I think that's what happens. That's my guess. So therefore, Christians going, how how could you not like? How could you not believe someone so beautiful and perfect isn't the Messiah? And I think the way it works is that Christians, and if I'm wrong. Tell me, I think Christians just, just children, just grow up. You know, Jesus loves you, and don't be one of those bad people who don't like Jesus. Because if you do that, you're doing what the what those bad people back then did to him, and they killed him. And and and, and it's a very appealing story because all of us know there was a time in our lives where we were blamed for something we didn't do. Have that has that ever happened to you? Of course, it happened to you a thousand times. That people accused you of doing something you never did? That someone said, you know, tried to hurt you? I mean, have you ever been betrayed in your life? Of course you have. Has someone ever turned their back on you? Of course someone's turned their back on you. Have you ever been harmed for something you never did? It's the worst feeling in the world. How could how could you not be attracted to this Jesus figure is created and forged by the church. That's why it's very, very appealing. The person that, and folks, Jewish people miss this. I, I, you know, when I first started becoming very sensitive to the fact that there are Jews who are being targeted by Jews who Jews, I didn't understand any of this. I thought, you know, you just show them the Bible and that's going to be the end of it. It's like, I'm going, like, what's the attraction here? What's the appeal? Why? Are we? That's the appeal. The appeal is. You know, Jesus is everything you're not. You know, he doesn't do anything wrong. He loves you unconditionally. Just don't turn your back on him. So that's why people are terrified. And if you do, you go to hell. So that's really bad. And that's very scary. And no one wants to go to hell. And people are aware of the fact that you spend a lot more time being dead than alive. You want to get that part of your career right. So I think that's what's going on in the minds and souls of of Christians, and it's reinforced by, you know, all kinds of celebrations, Christmas in particular, very important. You know, folks tell me, even folks who are B'nai Noach or uh, Jew, Christians who convert to Jews say the one thing they miss is Christmas. Like, why not? Why Christmas? It's not an important Christian holiday. But it was a time when the family got together, and there was uh, the good guy and the bad guy, and there's what, what was the miracle on 34th? It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th. I mean, these are, beautiful, these are great movies, great, my, some of my favorite movies. So there's always the, the bad guy in the movie, the villain. No one wants to be the villain, so it all relates, it all makes sense. But the question is truth, like what is the real truth? I want to worship God in purity. I, I don't want idolatry. You know, I don't want to be worshiping Hercules, no matter how appealing he is, or Zeus, or so on. But never forget the power and appeal of other faiths. So, so I think that's what—that's why there's so many billions of Christians who are so sincere, 
and uh, are going, Jesus, he's like beautiful, perfect. I'm not going to reject him. I'm not going to turn my back on him. I, I, what what Jews do is Jews are never Jewish kids are never exposed to this. Jewish kids, you know, are raised, you know, learning the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on and so forth. Then they wonder, like, what are those Christians doing? And then they go, well, he was the Messiah. And Jews are going, well, look at the Jewish scriptures. So the answer to this question posed by Mary is that you have to ask yourself, what is the definition of a Messiah? What is the Messiah supposed to accomplish? Now, here's the strange thing with four minutes left. And that is the Messiah. The word Messiah is never applied to the Messiah in the Bible. But let's just use that term because that's the term we're most familiar with. Just like the Haggadah almost never mentions Moses, the Tanakh almost never discusses the Messiah himself. It's the way the world is, how the time that the world is transformed. And the Bible is very specific. And I outlined it earlier of, you know, how the world is going to be changed as a result of the coming of the Messiah. So the way we will know that the Messiah has come is not like he's going to take out his, you know, government issued, you know, photo, you know, driver's license or two dots of hood that says on it, Messiah. That's not how we're going to know. We're going to know because there's going to be a worldwide knowledge of God, the ingathering, the exiles, the temple built in Jerusalem. That's how we will know that the messianic age is here. Not because he, like, says here, take a look at my genealogical record. Take a look at this. And that's what you find in the beginning of Matthew. He doesn't have to show his ID. Now, the Bible tells us, informs us, that he will be a descendant of King David and Solomon. We know that. But that's not how we know, because there are thousands of people today, thousands around the world, who are descendants of King David. Some of them are very dear friends of mine. I'm not, but they're, they're, they're out there. So that's the answer. The answer is there are these fundamental messianic prophecies that are clearly identifiable. Um, they're permanent. They're not like a virgin birth. Like, I don't know. Like, I didn't speak to Mary's gynecologist. I have no clue. The messianic prophecies change the world. There's no way to to replicate them, to invent them, a, a universal peace that's described explicitly in the Bible that all Christians concede is are messianic. These are the identifiable events that will occur, epic events, unprecedented events in history. But the most important, what did I tell you? Now we'll see if you're listening. The most central event in the messianic age is that God will be coronated as the master and the king of the universe, not just by the Jewish people, but by the world. You got that? The whole world will know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Read Isaiah chapter 60. It's critical. Isaiah 60 describes what's going to happen in the Messianic age. Ah, it should only happen quickly in our time. That's the key. Quickly in our time. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has come upon you. Please, God, it'll happen quickly in our time. You're listening to Singer Israel National Radio. I'll be back Tuesday, live, right here on air. To all of you, Shalom. This is a moment of Jewish history.
Hey, what's that new stuff you're using to uh, brush your teeth with? Tohar oil. Tohar oil? Where's that from? Israel. Israel? Israel. You want a natural herbal total tooth and mouth cleansing experience? Now from Israel, Shemana Tohar. Get a bottle of etheric oil formula and a container of mineral enriched powder which absorbs germs and bacteria. Get the Tohar oil treatment kit. Visit www.shemen-hatohar.com. Shemen-hatohar.com. Israel is known for its breakthroughs in medical research, including the field of herbal supplements. Priso Opuntimal is dedicated to the wellness of men and women, particularly in the areas of prostate and urinary tract health. We make it affordable for you to get the very best natural health supplements available. Don't just suffer. Get Priso brand Opuntimal. Order it online at priso.com. That's P-R-I-S-S-O dot com.